Testament, well, I invite you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 15. Often wanted to go through, especially verses 12 and 13, some time as a congregation. And this past week, I was studying Exodus 32, and it started off as two sermons. Then it went to three. Then it went to one. <laughs> then it went back to two. Then it went to zero. I thought, it's Thursday at noon. I better figure this out. So we'll uh, look at Exodus 32, hopefully in about two weeks. Next time we have an evening worship service. And by then, I will have figured out how many chunks we're going to take it in. Uh, but tonight, First uh, Thessalonians 5 at verse 12 is where we're going to read and consider. And before we do so, I invite you to pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, your word is living and active. It is powerful. It cuts us all the way down to our very bone marrow and joints. And as we open it up tonight, we ask that your Holy Spirit would be at work, that we would leave here changed, that none of us would walk out of here the same way we came in, that we would love you more, that we would more and more appreciate the work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that we would also love your church more and each believer, and that we might be faithful in the performance of our duties to one another. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 5 at verse 12. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives tonight. So beloved congregation of hope and everyone with us here tonight, uh, we're looking at what it is to be part of the household of God. The church is a institution which the Lord has purchased with his own blood. It's the community of the redeemed. And we have the distinct privilege of being part of it inside God's household. He has arranged some rules for our family life together. And that's what Paul's getting at here in his closing verses to the Thessalonian church. This is a church which he was at maybe three weeks in Thessalonica. He's writing the first epistle about six months after he was there. They had made tons of progress in the faith. And now he's giving them a letter to encourage them in order uh, that they might grow. And also to instruct them on how they're called to live with each other inside the congregation. And I want us to see just uh, three things uh, tonight as we walk through this. First of all, the duties of elders to members, the attitude, secondly, of members to elders, and then third, the ministry of every believer to each other, those three things. So first, the duties of elders to members, and I wanna uh, unfold that in, in uh, three ways. The first duty of elders or leaders, um, or those who labor among you, is that they are to be uh, working tirelessly, or they are to be laboring. So verse 12, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. And we might say, well, who would those be? When he uses the language of over you, almost intuitively, every commentator says, oh, these are church leaders, these are elders that he's uh, thinking of. And the word uh, labor, translating ESV, those who labor among you, is the language of to become weary or tired, to exert oneself physically, mentally, or spiritually. 
a state of discomfort or distress to engage in activity that is burdensome. So what Paul's saying is that being an elder in a congregation, eldering is just hard work. As one elder I heard put it years ago, who in their right mind would actually want to serve in the position of an elder for power? If they had any idea about how much work it is and the toll it takes on you emotionally and mentally and spiritually, they would never want to do this just for fun and for personal influence. And he's right. Being an elder is just work, tiresome work. It's good labor, but it takes a, a, a lot. It's hard labor. The second duty of elders to members is visible leadership by example. If you look at verse 12, we ask you brothers to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord. Now that phrase over you in the Lord, the word over you has to do with to stand in front of. It's literally to stand before or to stand in front of. It's to have a character which provides the needed model to direct others. It's to positively impact others by example, influencing people by having a respected reputation, to be at the head of, to rule, to have an interest in, to show concern for. So there's a lot invested in this word, which has, which has to do with to stand before. But what he's getting at are at least three things. Number one, elders are visible. Their work among the church is to stand before people. It's visible work. They stand before others in a room full of people sitting down, as it were. Their lives, their faith, their teaching is all on display. That's just part of the duties of an elder toward those they serve. The second aspect of this to stand before is positively impacting people by example, right? So they're standing in front of them, and by their life and by their testimony, they're to be an example and then the third aspect of this standing before is they exist to shepherd and care for and protect the church leading in this work. So we might use the language of ruling over, but it's ruling over with a keen interest to the spiritual well-being of those in the church, and it's done in the Lord. Catch that phrase, in the Lord, those who rule over you in the Lord. It's done for Christ's glory. It's done as those who are under shepherds, knowing that the chief shepherd is going to appear and everyone will have to give an account to him uh, for how they shepherded. And then the third aspect of an elder's duties toward members of the church, toward those under them, is admonition, those who admonish you. The language admonishes nuthateo simply to counsel about avoidance or cessation of an improper course of conduct. Paul to the Ephesian elders while they're standing on the shore in Acts 20 verse 31 said, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, going from house to house, from person to person, encouraging them, correcting them, whatever it is that they needed. And to be an elder and fulfill our duties is to be willing to call sin, sin, and to tell people that certain things have to stop, to correct course, uh, to stop the train before things get off the rails. This is arguably one of the hardest parts of the work. You don't have the option of being silent. You don't have the option of being sort of a wallflower and not saying anything. You have to engage in this work. And you have to do it in a wise, loving way uh, and try and figure out something which needs to be said that can be Helpful. Hopefully one's ministry as an elder is not inundated with having to admonish others, but the necessity of admonishment will always be 
a part of an elder's service, and it takes wisdom to know what this looks like and to do it gently and with love. Well, the second thing I want to look at is the duties of members toward elders, or really the attitude of members toward elders. So if you look at verse 12, we ask you brothers or brothers and sisters to respect those who labor among you and are over you and the Lord and admonish you. The first attitude is one of respect. And that language is to be alert or on guard, to pay attention, to be mentally or spiritually perceptive. Another way of saying it is to show respect, to appreciate the value of elders. Now, this is a task of the member of church toward those who are in leadership. We are to value those who are in leadership, who labor tirelessly and sacrificially for our spiritual well-being. Whatever we do, we don't want to be the congregation which detests elders or is unthankful for them. Uh, in fact, we're supposed to be those who, according to Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What makes an elder groan in his work is members who have an attitude toward them that is derogatory or divisive. It's an attitude which does not respect their work and what they're trying to do for the sake of the Lord and his glory and the well-being of the church. But whenever a leader might say black, the folks say white, or someone says white. And what is interesting is that Hebrews makes it clear that for those who make the elders groan, they're actually making their lives more difficult. He says that would be of no advantage to you. So let elders who serve do this with joy. I can't speak for my fellow elders, but if I could, and I think, I think I'd be right in saying this, hope is a congregation where it is a joy to serve in the midst of. Not necessarily because the work is easy, but because the members of hope have gone out of their way to be respectful. The second attitude um, from members toward elders, the first one is respect. The second one is to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, verse 13. The word esteem is to engage in an intellectual process, think process, consider, or regard. So it's to hold them in very high esteem, to think highly of them, to give them a high place in our minds. Now, why? Because we like them? No. Because they are perfect? No. Because they are extra special human beings who are a cut above the rest? No. Catch what Paul says. Esteem them highly because of their work. We esteem doctors because of the work, their work of caring for our bodies, right? We esteem our bosses because of their work providing us jobs. We esteem our parents because of their work in raising and training us. We esteem our spouses because of their work of loving us and encouraging us. We even esteem our veterans and active duty military members because of their work of protecting us. It only makes sense that we would esteem our elders because of their work of caring for our souls. And again, as an encouragement to us as a congregation, I think Hope Church is a very encouraging congregation to serve as elders because the general lay of the land is one of esteeming those who serve as elders for the sake of their work. And then there's a third command here that really, you could argue, applies to both elders and members. Live at peace with one another. Now, some have yoked it with what follows in verse 14, 
But if you look at verse 12, there's a, a word in Greek that is the word de, which is a transition word. And then in 14, that same word de is used, which is a transition word. And you see it, there's actually an address to brothers in verse 12, and then an address to brothers in verse 14. And so it looks like in verses 12 and 13, they are connected. So whatever he's saying in verse 12 is also connected with verse 13. And then in verse 14, he makes a transition to talk to everybody. But before he moves on to talk to the whole congregation, he says to elders, to members, to leaders, uh, to members of a church, he says, live at peace with one another. So grammatically, I think the argument is this is an address to elders and to members on how to do life together. And so often it is the case, I'm not going to belabor this much, that when there is a breakdown between the leaders of any church and her members, the entire church suffers. Or to put it another way, the relationship between church leadership and membership is absolutely vital in the relationships of the church. It's absolutely vital to the health of the church. When this relationship falls apart, generally, the church suffers for it. When this relationship is healthy, uh, the church can thrive. So let me ask just a few questions here. For leaders, are we living at peace with the members of the church? For members, are we living at peace with the elders of the church? For all of us, are we living at peace with each other? Remember, our God's a God of peace. Our God went to battle for us in Christ. At the cross, God secured our peace with him, and he reconciled us to himself through the blood of the cross, through the work of Jesus Christ. So God is at great pains to make peace, not only between us and him, but also he's at great pains to have his people be at peace with one another. So on account of what God has done for us in Christ, making peace uh, between us and him, uh, on account of that, we are to be a people inside the church who pursue peace and live at peace with one another. Now I want to finish by looking uh, third at the ministry of each believer to each other. So verses 14 to 15 are a ton of commands regarding how we are to treat each other as siblings in Christ. And I want to begin with admonishing the idol. We urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the idol. The notion of idleness has to do with those believers who are disorderly or their lives are out of step. Uh, other translations have translated idle as undisciplined, unruly, disorderly, or out of line. I think that's a better translation than the language of idle. And Leon Morris put it this way, the word translated by idle is really a military word and originally referred to the soldier who is out of step or out of rank or to the army moving in disarray. So what does it look like being out of line? What does uh, being idle or better yet unruly look like? Uh, someone might have a history or a problem of lording their opinion over others. And so they use coercion, they use uh, strong personality to try and force everyone to believe exactly like them. Someone might uh, be out of line with gossip, with spreading uh, false accusations with backbiting. Someone might be out of line with getting drunk or a husband or wife not treating each other well or stealing. I remember a classmate in high school whose dad regularly stole from his employer. Nobody ever talked to him about it, but that would be an example of 
when we're unruly or sometimes a temper, fits of rage, things like that. What are we to do when a fellow sibling in Christ is walking through this and is unruly? We're to admonish them. The word means simply to warn them, pull them aside, tell them, hey, can't keep living like this. I love you in Christ. Uh, let's work this out. And something I want to highlight here is that in elder-led churches, it's so common for members to neglect these duties. What I want to highlight here, what I want to showcase in verses 14 and 15, is that these are commands for all of us as believers. These are not commands for the leadership. These are not commands for just the elders. This is everybody in the church. We are to admonish the idol. Albert Barnes wrote, One reason why there is so little piety in the church and why so many professors of religion go astray is that the great mass of church members feel no responsibility on this subject. They suppose that it is the duty only of the officers of the church to admonish an erring brother, and hence many become careless and cold and worldly, and no one utters a kind word to them to recall them to a holy walk with God. All of us as believers are duty-bound to admonish one another when someone's life is in the world of unruliness and disarray in sin. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out when someone's life is going off the rails. Some people will say, well, I'm, I'm not good at that. I'm not well-educated. And Paul doesn't use that as a qualification at all regarding admonishment. We as siblings are called to do this for one another. Uh, there, children sometimes are really good at this by nature. When the Shrek character Fiona turned from a woman into an ogre, a two-year-old pointed to the TV and said, now she's a mom. <laughs> a subtle but not so subtle admonishment of her mom. Mom, you're kind of like an ogre. <laughs> or a father and toddler waited for an hour to see the doctor. When the doctor finally came in, the toddler pointed to the watch on the doctor's hand and said, this is a clock. Right again, an admonishment doc. Hey, look, you're supposed to be on time. Right? If kids can discern that, unruly behavior, behavior that's out of whack, Surely we as believers can too. And this is sibling work. We're all siblings in Christ. None of us is a parent. We're all in this together. Do you remember those hard things that a sibling would sometimes tease you about when growing up? You know, you're kind of bossy. Uh, you hog all the good food. You're so mean. <laughs> in a more mature way, uh, we are sharpening one another as iron sharpens iron. And admonishment is the way that so often happens. Let me say one more thing. The gentle word of correction from a sibling in Christ can go a long way towards spiritual growth. A gentle word of admonishment from a brother or sister in Christ can go a long way toward our growth. It's not throwing someone under the bus saying, you know, how could you? I'm better than you are. It's brothers and sisters in a family, God's household, looking out for one another, saying, hey, I love you, I care for you. Hey, let's try and turn this ship around, I'm here. But this, this ship can't keep going in this direction. Second thing, encourage the faint-hearted, verse 14. The faint-hearted is literally small-souled. Uh, small and soul combined into one word. Uh, it's uh, uh, synonyms, discouraged, timid, worried, scared, reluctant, hesitant. These are believers who are afraid. They're easily discouraged. They're overwhelmed by life uh, and thus hesitant and reluctant to step out in faith. 
Some have described them as they are without a healthy identity. They need encouragement. We're called to encourage them. They're often paralyzed by fear. And so to encourage them is literally to just come up beside them and offer them consolation, help cheer them up. Some examples could look like someone says, I can't parent my children. This is just too much for me. And we say, yes, you can. God will give you the strength one day at a time. Someone says, I don't have the strength to fight this sin. I'm too weak to overcome it. And someone comes along and encourages them and says, you're not too weak to overcome it. All your sins are forgiven. You're not condemned for them. God is at work. He can give you grace to keep fighting and to keep going on. Someone says, I don't think I can make it to the finish line. It's a long way. There's a lot of suffering going on. I don't know if I can keep going through this. Actually, walking away from Jesus sounds better. And encouragement for the faint-hearted would look like, no, you can. Again, one day at a time. The Lord is going to preserve you. He will strengthen you. He will bring to completion what he's begun. And we're going to be right here next to you walking with you step by step. In fact, we'll even daily encourage you. We'll encourage you every day if that needs to happen in order that you can keep running the race. Well, another duty that we have toward one another is helping the weak. The weak uh, are those, literally, they have an incapacity for something. And theologians and pastors almost always divide the category of the weak into the morally weak and the spiritually weak, or those who are weak in faith. Regarding the morally weak, These are brothers and sisters who continue to fall back into the same sins over and over again. Their lives from the outside look like they don't uh, have much moral progress. They're born again, but they've undergone very little sanctification by their own testimony or by outward appearances. And the Apostle Paul says we're to help them. And the language of help is to have a strong attachment to or interest in someone. It's, it's the language of caring deeply. So help the weak. How? Walk right alongside them and be very near to them and have a strong interest in them. So let me just throw out some examples of what this can look like or what this often does look like. So monetary sins. If a brother or sister is a spendthrift, unable to control their spending, always broke a couple days after they get paid, you can help them manage their money by setting a budget with them and then helping them stick to the budget, right? They're just weak morally. They're emotional spenders, whatever the case might be. Alcoholism. Someone uses alcohol as an escape mechanism. Life gets rough, they turn to it. So what would it look like to help them? Just walk right alongside them. Uh, Be there with them. Talk to them daily. Pray for them. Internet addictions. Someone's addicted to the internet, whether images or just time on a screen. What does it look like? Help them. Walk alongside them. Say, hey, I'm here for you. I'm here to help you in this moral weakness, to strengthen you, to encourage you so that you can grow morally. And we're called to help as well, not just the morally weak, but those who are spiritually weak. And the spiritually weak are described in Romans 14, verses 1 through 2. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So there are believers who think that there are some days more important than others. There are believers who think some foods are off limits. There are believers who just in their weakness of faith don't know what they can or can't uh, legitimately participate in as believers. Paul says everything's clean, but they say, no, this isn't clean. And so to help those who are weak in faith, who are weaker brothers, 
is part of our work as well. Ours is the call to help them, not to look down our nose at them, not to look at brothers and sisters in Christ who've fallen into sin and sneer at them, but to get in the trenches and help them. Remember Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was actually Romans 6, I just read this past week, uh, spoke of a 30-year-old husband who uh, fell into sin with one of his secretaries on the job. They were uh, making out, etc. And while they were doing that, he continued to remember his children and his wife at home. And then he went home. He was just caught between his fleshly desire and what he knew was right. And he would love his wife really well and his children. His wife thought he was the most incredible husband in the world, and he did love her. And he went back to the office, and this happened again. Thankfully, things didn't progress too far, but it happened, and it was wrong and sinful. And eventually, he came to Donald Gray Barnhouse and said, I have a problem. I need help with this. And they talked through it. And Barnhouse went to, his wife called his wife into there and said, look, here's what's going on. I want you to understand that he doesn't want to do this. This is the weakness of his flesh. This is a weak man, and we're going to try and get him stronger. And his wife understood. She forgave him. They worked through it. She stood by him, and Barnhouse continued to work with him and strengthen him. Beloved, ours is the call to strengthen those who are weak, those who are susceptible to falling, not to condemn them, but to strengthen them and to help them. And then he concludes by saying this, be patient with them all. Now, in the Greek, there is no word them. It just says be patient with all. But the thinking behind the translation is that on, we're supposed to be patient with them all. Who all? The weak, those who are faint-hearted, uh, those who are in difficulty. We're to be patient with all the groups that he just mentioned need help. We're to be patient with them. So taken in context, I believe the command here is given especially to those believers who are working with the idle, the faint-hearted, and the weak. And to be patient is literally long wrath. It's to have a long fuse. It's the word long and wrath sandwiched together in one word. Be long wrath. Don't be quick-tempered. When you're helping somebody, don't blow a fuse. Don't lose it. Don't be frustrated. Don't get impatient with them but indeed have a really, really long fuse. Show them love, show them kindness. No amount of wrath or prodding or yelling on anyone's part has ever helped someone else. James 1.20, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. It's not possible. Introduce man's wrath into a discipleship relationship, and one thing we know will not be produced, the righteousness of God. So we're called to be patient. And again, we should know all about this, right? Because our God's very patient. We all have sinned. We all have failed God. We've broken his law this past week. Today, we've broken God's law. We've done it our whole lives, and we will continue to break God's law for the rest of our lives. And does God strike us dead? Does he utter words of condemnation from heaven? No, he continues to remind us that in my son, all your sins are forgiven. He is so patient with us. He put Jesus on the cross so all of our sins could be paid for. And now he doesn't condemn us. Instead, he actually forgives us. This is incredible. If that's how God has treated us, with that kind of patience, that tenderness, that long wrathness, then not only should that bring us tremendous comfort, and it should, 
but it should also encourage us to be those who are tremendously patient with our fellow siblings in Christ who are struggling. The story is told of Philip Brooks, a 19th century Episcopalian pastor, that he was pacing around the floor in a bit of a huff, and a friend asked him, what's the trouble, Mr. Brooks? He said, the trouble is that I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. And that is so often the case, beloved, in our relationships with one another as believers. We might say, you've got to grow up quickly. And God might say, this person will grow up, but it will be less quickly than what you're looking for and less quickly than what they want to. So be patient with them all. And then one more closing encouragement. Verse 15, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Or to use the language of Romans 12, 19, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. What's interesting in verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 5 is the first word, see that. No one repays anyone evil for evil. See to it. Another translation would be, be alert for this. Take care, make sure that, or keep an eye out to ensure that no one repays anyone evil for evil. This is an active verb. <laughs> it's like, hey, if someone's thinking about paying evil for evil, you go see to it that that doesn't happen. You watch over your fellow siblings in Christ, and if you see that their life is filled with revenge and they're ready to go at it with somebody, do everything you can in your power to make sure that they don't. And again, this is a duty for everyone in the congregation. I remember meeting with a believer whose daughter was in prison, and she was in prison because she had attacked her husband and got a prison sentence for it. What very few people knew which she told her dad once she was in prison, is that the reason she attacked her husband is because he was coming at her again, he threatened her again, and just a few weeks before that, he had actually got her on the ground, beat her up, and started kicking her in the stomach to try and kill the baby in her stomach. She was pregnant, quite a bit pregnant. Well, the dad heard this and was irate. His son-in-law is not in prison. His daughter is in prison because she was basically trying to defend herself and the baby inside of her. And what this dad wanted to do day in and day out, didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out. He just wanted to go kill his son-in-law. I just, I want revenge. I want justice. I can't believe he did this. He's free and she's in prison for this. And I can't tell you how many of us would continually meet with this brother in order to talk him off the ledge. Don't do it. God isn't honored in the midst of this. It feels right, but vengeance is God's. Let him repay it. Let God take care of it. God says vengeance is mine. Don't take vengeance into your own hands. And to this day, he hasn't. But again, it took a lot of believers, a lot of siblings in Christ to say, look, we can understand where you're coming from. Don't do this. See to it, beloved, that no one repays evil for evil but let us be an encouragement to one another that we might be those who forgive. So the church is the blood-bought community of God's people doing life together. Welcome to family life. I hope you're encouraged to do life together and willing to do the hard work of watching out for your siblings in Christ, even as they watch out for you. Let's pray.